My guest today is the incredible Taban Shoresh, former child genocide survivor who suffered imprisonment as a four-year-old with her family during the Saddam Hussein regime. They narrowly escaped being buried alive and after a year of dodging bombs and bullets, managed to escape with the help of Amnesty International and began a new life in London. Over time, Taban adjusted to life here, but the trauma of her experiences never fully left her. She married at a young age and settled into her university studies and subsequent career. Little by little, she came to realise that the relationship she was in was highly abusive and she feared for her life once more. Somehow, however, she found the courage to escape. By 2014, ISIS was waging another genocide and Taban made a radical decision to leave her career in the financial services sector and return to Kurdistan as an aid worker. After this experience, Taban realised that she needed to do more for many. She set up the Lotus Flower, a not-for-profit for women and girls impacted by conflict and displacement. Since its launch, it has supported ISIS survivors in three camp-based centres and to date has helped over 40,000 women and girls. Its aim is to give displaced women and girls a sustainable future. We discuss Taban's many life-changing experiences, her epiphanies, and the challenges and courageous turning points on the journey. You are listening to Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. I love a great story. So in this season, I will talk to incredible people who've experienced huge, pivotal moments of real change by choice or by circumstance. From stories of reinvention and inspiring career pivots to the dramatic shifts that happen in moments of crisis, I hope you can join us each week to hear about their fascinating and inspiring journeys. My guest today is Taban Shorash. Taban, welcome to Double Espresso with D. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure to have you with me today. So, Taban, you have been through many changes in your life, some of which have been incredibly traumatic. Some, whilst massively challenging, have been, um, I guess, opportunities to see the positive side of life and to bring about constructive change for yourself and for many. But I would like to go back to your childhood. Your father was a political activist during the reign of Saddam Hussein. And as a family, you were imprisoned when you were a little girl aged four. And you dodged bullets and bombs for a year trying to keep alive before you were brought to the UK by amnesty. What are your memories of that time? I appreciate it's a very long time ago. But what comes back to you when you sit at that moment in time? I think for me, the day that we were taken to prison is definitely the moment that I do remember. I remember that very clearly. The day that we were taken to prison, I was playing in the garden and there was like a loud thumping noise. And I ran to my uncle um, to see what the I actually thought as a child, I thought it might have been a family member that was knocking on the door, hence running towards him. Um, but when he opened the doors, it was two Iraqi soldiers that were standing there and they asked for my mum. Well, my uncle before that had tried to kind of wean them off because he knew why they were there. 
And he said, he patted me on the head and said, no, she's left him, meaning my father, because of this child. And they looked down at me and said, okay, does that mean you've got divorce papers to show it and prove it? And obviously it was just something made up to kind of deter them. So my mum had to come out and they said, you know, we just want to take you in for questioning and we'll ask you some questions. Um, It's nothing serious, just a few questions. And so when they took her, they kind of hurried me and took me as well. And all the adults were just um, basically begging for them not to take me because I was so young and still a child. The trauma of that time can engender emotions that can remain. Is there a word that you put against the feeling you had going through those you know, biblical experiences. I remember just watching the adults, especially my mum, and knowing how upset, angry and traumatised they were. I kind of knew to be quiet. You know, for me, I just remember being really, really quiet and trying to be as invisible as possible and not make any mistakes that would make the adults upset or angry because you could sense that it wasn't normal and you could sense that it wasn't a good time. And when you eventually were all taken out of of captivity and and brought to the UK, what's your memory of that? So we were destined to be buried alive and when we managed to escape that, we went into hiding for three months in the south of Iraq and then after that we went to we, we we ended up fleeing from village to village. And this was during the Iran and Iraq war. So not only did we have Saddam Hussein trying to kill us, but we were also trying to not die from all the bombs dropping down from that war. So we were often going from village to village, but all the villages were deserted because people had fled them because of the bombs that were being um, dropped down. So often it would just be my mother, my brother, myself with possibly, you know, um, other freedom fighters who were in that village and then moving to the next one and next one. And that happened for, I'd say, about a year. And my father would join us sometimes and then go back to being where he needed to be. And eventually, I think my mum just put her foot down and said, I can't kill myself or the kids for you and what you're doing you need to try and get us out of this country into safety and so he'd agreed and said I'll meet you in Iran Um, so we had already started our journey there and got smuggled into Iran on horseback at night time and so we got there before him but with my dad he Saddam Hussein had hired a husband and wife to basically murder a few key men and he was one of them and they'd put poison in a yogurt drink that they'd had. And so two of them died on the spot. My dad drank enough to be paralyzed with two other men. And they were taken to Iran instantly. And as soon as Amnesty International heard of their story, they flew them out for medical treatment. And after a year, we joined him when he eventually was recovered and had all the paperwork to kind of allow us to come over. Right. So You were very young and now obviously you're an adult and you've got your family here and your son. How did that experience impact the person you've become today? And I know we're going to go on and talk about many things that you've done since. What was the impact, do you think? I think on a fundamental level, it instilled resilience in me from day one. Um, And I think, you know, seeing that in my mother as well, you know, for for us, we were very young and, you know, we've most probably forgotten a lot of things. But for my mum... She was an adult with two children experiencing all of this. And I can't imagine myself experiencing that with my son. So 
I would say from day one, I've been instilled with a great amount of resilience, which is a massive positive. But on the negative, you know, all the trauma, all the fear and instability, I guess what that did is it's always kept me on fight or flight mode. So my body has never been on rest mode. I don't know what it's like to be on rest mode. And obviously this has come out in illnesses and further further down the line. But then on the plus side, I'm extremely resilient and very adaptable to change. For some people, change is such a scary concept that for me, I, I, I will change something in a split of a second and not even think about it because... I, maybe it's because I've survived death so many times that it's not that bad. Any decision I make, it won't be life-threatening. And when you when you all came here, I'd love to talk about your parents just momentarily. How was your mother coming out of that and coming to the UK? How did she cope and how did she manage, do you think, with hindsight, with all that radical change? again, with a great deal of resilience. And she's also very adaptable to change. I think for her, I don't actually know how she did it because she's experienced all of that trauma with two children. And then she's been forced to come to a country and leave all her family behind to come to another country where she doesn't speak the language, where she doesn't know anyone with two children, completely alienated. And, you know, for someone who was working before, so my mum used to be a working parent in Kurdistan. And so, so many different changes for her, but she's always put the children first and she's always made sure that we've always had what we've needed and the support that we've needed. And I guess instilled that resilience in us. Um, my father was also, you know, he he was still very passionate. The cause and the passion that he had back home when he was a freedom fighter, he still carried over, but he turned it into writing. So because he was a poet before, um, obviously, when you've come here, you can't just pick up arms and carry on your freedom fighting. He continued with his pen. So he continued with his writing and he completely immersed himself in that. I mean, we need more poets, right? But everyone finds their way of coping in different ways and through different passions and activities and so forth. And so you all settled here over time and, and you went on to go to school and you went to university and then you did a master's. By the time you were a student, how did life feel having gone through such dramatic experiences as a, a young child and settling in a new country, a new language, a new lexicon, new codes, etc.? How was life looking and feeling for you mm. then? Um, I think a lot of diasporas will have an understanding of this. When you come from a culture and you've come into another culture especially with parents who are very passionate about their own culture, you know, they kind of left that region but kept the time frame and the thinking and the way they do things and everything was kept the same for them. You know, even if that region moves on, for them it's exactly the same. So for us growing up, we were instilled with really deep-rooted identities of being Kurdish, which I'm very proud of. But in my teen years... I do remember it caused a lot of um, confusion because I had two cultures to deal with. I had lots of English friends and then I was Kurdish and there were things that you couldn't do because you were Kurdish and your English friends are doing them. And so 
there was a massive battle between that and I do remember that very clearly. Um, what felt like home to you during that time and even today? Where, where is home? That's a very difficult question. For me, both feels like home. You know, home's here and home's there as well. Home is there is because I'm Kurdish and I'm, I was born there and it's deeply instilled in my blood and heritage. But home's also here because this is where I've grown up. This is where I've had safety. This is where I've done everything. This is where I've achieved everything. So for me, both play a role of home. And I think you can have multiple homes and one doesn't override the other. I'm very proud of my Kurdish identity and heritage. And equally, I'm very proud of being British as well. So for me, both plays a part in that. Um, I guess what was the hardest? I think the confusion led to me being married early. And it wasn't because my parents forced me or it was an arranged marriage. It's quite the opposite, to, to be honest. It was... Um, me being a rebellious teen trying to prove that I can make it work and it will happen and marrying somebody back home, which was not a great idea because even though I'm Kurdish, you know, our, there was a clash of cultures because yeah. I've grown up here. And diversity, like a chasm probably in some sort of just the modus operandi of your daily life, right? How old were you then, Taban, when you married I was 18 when I got engaged, 19 when I got married, and 20 when I had my son. How did you meet? This is where it works in culture. Their families knew ours, and so they came forward for my hand in marriage, basically, and I said yes. Um, so it's not the traditional sense. For example, at that time, you, I weren't allowed to have boyfriends. You can't have relationships outside of marriage. You can only get married. Had I been the person I am now, then it would be very different because I'm advocating for rights and and speaking up more and kind of setting boundaries. And, and also my parents evolved a lot over the time, like the mentality also changes. But at that time, it was something else. It was a different era. And I happened to marry the wrong man. And it was it was a very abusive marriage from day one. Was it, Were you living here or there at that point? Here, here. But, you know, I think when you kind of look at around you and you see that abuse is kind of normalised, you know, it doesn't matter if you shout at your wife or you coerce them into doing stuff or you, or you hit them or you get angry or aggressive. Like, when you see things like that around you from different people, it becomes normalised. So for me... Um, it took a very, very long time for me to realize, even though I hated every second and I became very scared, it just took that space of time for me to realize this isn't normal and it shouldn't be accepted. And the only reason why I can't get out is because it's a taboo to get divorced. That's not even right. In your case, what happened? Because you were very, very young, you know, neurologically, your brain was still being developed you were in a place of profound unhappiness and, and fear, frankly, from what you're saying. What happened for you to be able to make that step? Because lots of people get stuck and we know this and lots of people are in relationships of this kind and they feel they can't survive if they leave. They feel it will be frowned upon them to your point culturally that certain um, norms aren't acceptable. They feel that they, that they can't do anything. What got you over the line to just get out and change? I think 
for me to answer that, I'd have to kind of explain the context a little bit. So for, for the abuse started with coercive control, and I mean coercive control to the maximum limit. You know, I lost all my friends. I wasn't allowed to speak to anyone. Um, slowly, just things were stopped from me. Uh, he agreed to, with my family that he'd let me go to university and even that became a massive argument and fight and struggle but my family stepped in and said she's leaving you if you don't let her go to university so he gave in to that but it wasn't a normal university life I was in fear of him turning up at uni and suddenly starting a fight because I'd spoken to someone so you slowly the coercive control becomes so bad that you slowly are you're a puppet you do exactly what they say and you don't realize it and because you realize that the fights don't end until you do what they say so you give so in the only way of kind of stop yeah you give in you, you give in and that's exactly what I did for many years so the coercive control turned into emotional physical mental um verbal abuse and it just it just increased over time and for me you know, financial abuse is a big one as well. You know, any finances that you kind of have were controlled by him. So I didn't have access to finance. Anything that I earned would kind of be completely seen by him and taken by him, but not vice versa. <laughs> and then I think at the time he'd agreed to me working one day a week. But even then, that wasn't normal working. It was me going into work with my head down, coming out and not speaking to anyone, not going to any work dues, not doing anything, being on time. And then eventually it was, I was at work. He agreed to one fine, well, the only work do I'd never been before. And I'd canceled and said, made up excuses every other year or just constantly said no um, to, to work colleagues. And eventually I begged him, I said, please, I'm looking really, really weird. Just let me go once. And I'll come back at the agreed time that you've said, we, we took a team photo and it's a team photo, how team photos, people line up and everyone's standing next to each other. And so that's exactly what was happening in the photo. I was just standing there with my colleagues, but one of the colleagues next to me happened to be male. And he saw the picture and went absolutely crazy and just absolutely, completely lost it. And I just looked at him and went, nothing has happened. Like the, the photo was so innocent. I can't even describe how innocent it was. You can even see the fear of my face thinking, oh, if he sees this photo, he's going to kill me. I remember looking at him and going, I'd rather die than stay. I completely had enough because over something so innocent, something had erupted in such a big way. And for me, he'd, you know, ingrained in my head, which is what they do often, is that I'll kill you if you ever leave me. So I genuinely, genuinely believed that he would kill me. I was so fearful of that. But that night I decided I wanted to die, but I wasn't going to kill myself. So if he wants to kill me because I'm going to leave him, that's completely up to him. I'm ready to face that. And that was the decision. And I didn't have any money, but I had gold that my family had given right. me as gifts. For your dowry. you do when you get married. And I, yeah, that's it. I went and sold all of it. Went to a lawyer's firm and said, this is all the money I have. You have to get me divorced. And I don't know how I'm going to do it because he won't agree to it. He's abusive. I can't call the police. I can't do anything because I'm scared of what will happen. And so when I decided to do it, I didn't tell my family. 
I just didn't want to be swayed by anyone's opinions, anyone's interference. I just thought, this is it. I know what's going to happen. If I'm going to do this, I either he either kills me or I either get out and do this on my own and I have to rebuild my life. And that was it. Right. So we managed to get the divorce papers to him. And as soon as we did, he realized it was over. And he, he moved out and left the country, which, to be honest, was a blessing in disguise. Um, because up till for about two to three years, I was still fearful. Um, I would always look behind me or look around to see if he was following me. Because I genuinely believed that he would come up one day behind me without me knowing and stab me to death because he'd said it so many times. So for about two to three years, I was still very, very fearful. One changing moment for me was... The day, so when I'd left him, the day that I decided, okay, I need to start rebuilding me. I used to be a very confident, bubbly person. How do I get that person back? And I used to love drama in secondary school. So I thought, oh, let me try drama because my voice had gone. Well, it's the emotion, right? It's the emotional impact. It's like your heart is closing in and you can't speak because the word has been taken away from you, Right. Exactly. And for so many years, I've had to just completely shut down, not even just shut down, but completely shut down as in not allowed to talk to friends. I'm not allowed to tell anyone what's really going on. It's imprisonment, right? It's imprisonment and your voice is imprisoned. And so I'd lost my voice and I thought, how do I get my voice back? So I joined an evening class and it was a vocal skills combined with drama evening class. And my mum said, I'll look after your son. You have to go and do this. This is what you need. And the day that I walked in that first lesson, I walked in with my head down and really scared. And all I heard was, Siva's mum. This lady just screamed um, my son's name out. And when I looked up, she had the biggest smile on her face. And I just thought, who are you? I, I didn't know who she was. And I said, sorry, I'm really sorry. I don't recognize you. She said, I'm Siva's teacher. Oh, my gosh. So from reception, um, he had two teachers. And I had never spoken to them, really. So two of his teachers, it's, it's phenomenal that that happened because actually that course was the first step of me changing myself. I found my voice after 12 weeks. I ended up on a monologue slam on stage with a story that I'd written. Wow, And incredible. I won the competition. So for me, I just went, I, I did that? How did that happen? Um, and we're best friends even now. So even now we stay in touch. It is incredible though, the power to silence others, right? And this is something you've also dealt with for many years since then, because I guess that terribly traumatic and bruising relationship that you, thank God, were able to walk away from and rebuild over time. And, and we all know that that takes a very long time. It's not months or days, it's years. And to find oneself and find one's own voice, that ultimately led you to go back, I guess, indirectly to um, your homeland, didn't it? Again, this is... Uh such a lovely story. So when I was in that abusive marriage, he agreed to me working one day a week. And that one day a week job happened to be in an asset management firm where I was supporting in the digital team. 
But, you know, remember, I was still married at that time. So I would go into work with my head down, do my work, not talk to a single soul and get back out. Nobody would have remembered me from then. But I did my job really well. So after a few years when I divorced him and I was on my own, um, the same firm approached me. So the same place I used to work at approached me and said to Ban, we really love you and would love to for you to come back and work in the team. So I went back and worked with that team for three and a half years, I think. And then April 2014, I was asked to do a talk at the House of Lords on Genocide Remembrance Day. It was a very, very special moment and a turning point for me because when I did that talk, I wasn't expecting the reception or what would be triggered inside of me. You know, having a standing ovation of people with people crying and me not realizing for someone who was scared to even talk to anyone, to go up on stage in front of 200 people and just lose focus and Incredible. just go into my own world and describe my story and carry them on that journey. You know, they all stood up at the end and started crying. And I, I opened my eyes and just went, what's just happened here? But I realized then I need to do something that's connected to my past like that's my purpose I have to do something to connect it to my past and I need to figure out what that is was that literally an epiphany that day or was that something that came to you in the weeks and months that subsequent no it was a, it was an epiphany that day and it might have happened on a smaller scale two weeks before because in the in the place that I worked they encourage um, development so I had, I had to choose a course to enhance my development in an area that I wanted. So I said public speaking and presentation skills because I was, you know, the confidence levels wasn't high and I didn't know how to do them. And I worked in the digital team. So we went into that first class with a few other teammates. And I'll never forget that session because Julian, who's the trainer, asked me to stand up. He said, OK, let's see where we're starting from. Do a presentation on social media just talk about it from the heart and I must have been so bad and boring because he said to Van stop there okay just talk about a memory talk about a memory or something you're passionate about or something you're interested about and because I was put on the spot I didn't know what to talk about so I just went okay and I remember my brain just flicking to the moment I was taken to prison so I just described that moment of being taken from my grandma's house to the point that we were taken to prison without stopping. I bet he didn't expect that. <laughs> there was, the, the room was so silent. And he said to Ban, um, is that a story or a memory? I said, no, no, that's a memory. That's what happened to me as a child. And it was just complete silence. And he was in shock and... At the same time, I'd been asked to speak at the House of Lords. And so that moment of the whole room just going silent, going, huh? <laughs> it was just completely speechless. I thought, oh, wow, okay, that was received very differently. I wasn't expecting that. And so Julian helped me prepare for my House of Lords speech. And so that was the big moment of, okay, I really can't not, not do this. I need to figure out what I need to do. Did you feel emotional when you got that response? I felt really confused and I felt really, really confused and I didn't have anyone to turn to for advice. And actually that's 
this is the beauty in this story is that I didn't I didn't have anyone to turn to to ask, you know, can you give me some advice on this? Because I've lost everyone around me. And I knew if I asked my parents, you know, my family members, they'd say, no, why would you want to go back and do this? And then why are you bringing up all the trauma? So I wanted someone impartial and I didn't have anyone around me. But then I remembered at the place that I worked, I thought, oh, I'll ask the CEO. Brilliant. He started this company from, you know, he started it. He'll know the answer. Without zero understanding of, or fear of, you know, you've never had a meeting with him. You don't have a direct working relationship with him. He might have said hello to everyone, but he doesn't really know you. You don't really know him. And you're going to ask him this big life advice. But I don't know what it was in me. It, something just said, he's the right person to ask and you have to ask him. So I asked for a meeting. And this is someone who's not confident. We have to remember that there's zero confidence in me. I'm fearful of everything at this stage. So we went into the meeting and sat down. And the first thing I said was, I know this is really weird, but it's not a work-related question. I just need some advice. I just need some advice. That's all I need. And I don't know who to ask. And he knew about the talk that I'd given because everyone was really proud in the office. And he said, okay, I said, I have a background that you know about and I feel like I'm connect. you know, I should be doing something connected to that, but I'm, I don't know what to do. And I, I, I just don't know. I'm really confused. And, you know, I don't know if I was jittering. And he just stopped and said to Ban, you're too special for that corner desk. Can you please go and fly? And I will never, ever to this day forget those words because that was the moment where I just stopped and went, wow, if he sees it in me, then it must be in me. So I need to start seeing what he sees, but I didn't see it at the time, but he sees it. But that's one thing sitting in central London, right, from actually going back, being in Kurdistan at a very, very challenging time politically and getting stuck in. What what enabled you to just get on that plane and go for it? So I handed in my notice and I kind of put my CV out back home because I knew I wanted to go back there. I wasn't expecting anything and I think I got a response back from a, um, a foundation there and I thought, mm, I could do this. Okay, let's try. My job was to help this charity basically in their presence and I'd been approached by a BBC journalist to um, basically tell the world about the story of the Yazidis that were trapped on Mount Sinjar. I knew nothing about this when I arrived. I've just arrived from the corporate world straight from London into this job and I didn't know anything but as soon as he told me I just there was something in me I just thought we have to make this happen. I don't know how but we'll figure it out. And we made it happen and the report came out and, you know, it, it headlined internationally and it, it was a phenomenal response. But it also made me realise on that helicopter, you know, I've, I've, when we were rescuing people, the way people were just so desperate to live and hang on to their lives and what I was witnessing, you know, one of the men thought he'd put his child on the helicopter when actually he'd left him. And just those, just seeing that and feeling that and it was too much. And I, I thought there's no way that I can leave 
not doing anything. Um, so when I spent 15 months out there, it was very frontline direct and working with the community and working a lot with the Yazidi women and just with the displaced community. And there was like 2.6 million people displaced overnight. So there was a lot to be done. So when I came back, I, I, I couldn't go back to a normal job. First of all, it took three months for me to readjust to London. You know, I'd get on the tube and just think, I remember just being so angry at everyone and just thinking, you have zero reason to complain right now. <laughs> I have to do something. I have to feel like I'm doing something that I'm giving back and I'm helping the women and girls that I'd met out there. Working out what you do, even if you know the theme and the focus, it's not an easy thing to do. How did you go about that? Because I think this is something a lot of people struggle with. I think, see, this is where I feel very different to other people and this is how I function differently. Maybe because I've never had that stability and that clarity from day one. I've known that there's a solution for everything and everything will work out and you'll find a way to find a way. And for me, it was figuring out what I didn't want that helped me most. Um, so I knew what I didn't want to do. Sometimes I try and take uh, rational decisions. So for example, I took interviews. I made sure I got interviews for jobs that I knew I was fully qualified with, but I would talk myself out of the jobs in the interviews. And then I knew that I wanted to help women and girls because it's the closest thing I know. I, it's, it's something that I've experienced. It's something I, I've been there. I've experienced it. I'm not saying what's worked for me will work for them. But there is that empathy and that understanding. And so you have to start from somewhere. Like, I can't help everyone. I can't help the whole world. I can't help all, you know, women, girls, boys, men, children. I can't help everyone. So you have to start from a small place and a niche. So I knew that and I knew the name and I just registered it as a community interest group first because I couldn't I didn't know how to do the charity applications and I, I thought what's the fastest way of doing this and I figured that I could be a child charity under a parent charity so it's a it's quite a new system. So this is the genesis of the lotus flower right so tell me about the lotus flower it's a not-for-profit so it's really to improve the social economic cultural worlds of women and girls who are displaced, who are in camps, uh, who are in regions of conflict, right? But, but really from your homeland, right? Well, it's flourished from absolutely nothing. So I started it in my living room with bits of A4 on the wall. And then I thought, okay, well, I need somebody on the ground to be with me. And I found the regional manager. And we managed to get funding for one project, which was a sewing project, which the women wanted themselves. And I thought, oh, I don't want to do another sewing project. Everyone's doing this. How can we do the full loop? So we started bringing contracts from outside the camp to the women. So they're actually right. working. Right. And being paid. And being paid. Yeah. So they would be self-sustaining and self-employed. And so it's not just handing out a sewing machine. And then we realized, actually, the space is the most important thing for the women and girls in the camps they don't have anywhere the boys and men have cafes they can go out the camp they can leave there's nothing for the women 
So we started setting up the centers. So we set up these centers where women and girls come to learn, come to heal and come to grow. I love that. It's beautiful. And it's such a beautiful space. It's And we're ingrained in the community. They trust us. We support them. We started out with one center. We've now got four centers in the region. We're working in that region because the need is massive. There's still 2.6 million people displaced. So for us, we want to kind of do things properly and work in a region properly before we go to other regions. But we support them in, you know, there's adult literacy where they learn to read and write. So you've got 60-year-old women that have never been to school and they are learning to read and write. So for the first time in their life, they can read their prescriptions. They can read who they're calling on, on their mobiles. Like simple things that we take for granted the uh, life changing for them totally and also what people forget because people don't necessarily think logically about a camp uh, you know life continues a, a form of life continues people meet people um you know eat god willing there's, there's weddings going there's around. graduations uh, even there's if funerals there's there are parties, yeah. right? There are birthdays. You know, I know about your bakery. You know, all these things, people need to clothe themselves. They need to put shoes on. People try and have a semblance of life, you know, to educate their children in those environments and teach them skills and so forth. And, and this continues. And I, you know, as I mentioned to you before, the whole sort of refugee um, theme is a very big one for us and also at our Centre of Entrepreneurs. We've done a lot of work, a lot of um, research into this theme, migrant entrepreneurs. And quite a few of the refugees I've come across here are very successful entrepreneurs because they had no choice and they had to fight for it in sometimes very extreme situations. So um, I can't commend you enough for the work that you're doing. And tell me, Taman, what does it look like today? And, and, and what is your mission? Well, it, I guess the mission has always been to help as many women and girls impacted by conflict and displacement to heal, learn and grow. And we're doing exactly that. You know, our women's business incubator programs, we've helped set up so many businesses inside the camps. These camps, you've got at least 20,000 people in each one. So they're, they're like towns. And so to ha help them set up businesses, we've got a peace initiative where we're training peace mediators from the ground up, which is phenomenal and getting their voices heard. We're now working with women, um, boys and men um, because it's, it's a really important part of the cycle of helping women and girls and trying to really work with them on that. But I do genuinely, truly believe that you have to carry men and boys with you to kind of make it a big success. Totally. And I think as well, and I know this is part of your fundamental philosophy, if you create the conditions, whatever those look like, and wherever they are, for women and girls to thrive, the whole community will thrive, right? It's not an add-on, it's just an absolute fact, right? And we, we all need more of that. And we all know that, unfortunately, many of these communities become silent because people forget about them. How do you manage to keep it all going and keep doing what you're doing and keep supporting people back home? I think surround yourself with amazing people. You know, at one point in my life, I was cut off from people. And so for me, like I value the importance of good people in your life. And that includes building an amazing team. You know, I absolutely adore my team and they're equally as passionate as me. And so for me, it's, it's building the right people, having the right people around you and making sure you've got that support network. Although I've, 
like acted and made things happen and still act and make things happen. I can't do it on my own. There's just no way. It's physically impossible to do it on your own. And Duban, you have said that you in your life want to impact a million people. And it really feels to me in my heart that you are well on the way. But what does that really mean to you when you say that? Then I have to act and nobody else is going to act on my behalf then it means that you need to go on that project or extend that project or do this and do that. So it's it's willing to put that, not just time, but taking that step. I think taking the step is the most important thing. You've been through a huge amount of change in your life. Some of it's been incredibly challenging. Some of it's been unspeakably traumatic. Uh, you've also gone through many road to Damascus moments as well, which is beautiful and incredible. What would you say to someone who is living through hardship, whatever that looks like to them, when they need to make a shift, but they don't quite know, what would your piece of advice be to that person? As scary as it is, there's a solution for everything. So for the one thing that you think is not solvable, there is actually a solution for it. Just think a bit creatively and accept that. And also accept that it might not be an easy journey, but that's okay. It's not meant to be an easy journey. It's not meant to be a perfect journey. It's just knowing that there's a solution for everything. And I think that's what gets me through it is whenever I'm faced with an obstacle, I just feel the emotions. You know, you you, you don't just go robotic you feel the emotions and you kind of go through the emotions and then as long as you go back to that safe place of okay but realistically there is a solution for this it might not be the one that I prefer but there is a solution so that's my I think taking action don't be scared to take that action but also know that there's a solution for anything that you're worried about yeah, and I think that's beautiful. And I think that's fantastic advice. I mean, I just absolutely love you. You're such an inspiration and you're so real. And I want everyone to get behind you and the lotus flower and do what they can. And um, I hope this is the first of many conversations together. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thank you. Speaking to Taban today has been eye-opening heart-wrenching and incredibly inspiring. I didn't expect my day to include conversations about a four-year-old girl going to prison or being buried alive or whose father was poisoned by Saddam Hussein. I didn't expect the person telling me these stories to be so frank, so brave, so honest. It's extraordinary to think that someone who has seen such horror could live her life with such positivity and gratitude. Taban puts a lot of this down to resilience, and I really sense that from her. Her resilience is found in the knowledge that things have been worse in the past than they are now. I have survived death so many times, she says, and this makes her so open to change, so ready to seize opportunity, to take the road less travelled, to trust what's ahead, even if it's hard or unknown. Her resilience and strength is exactly what the CEO at Investec saw in her when she went to him for advice. And what a thing to tell someone. Taban, you're too special for that corner desk. Can you please go and fly? Sometimes when we don't believe in ourselves, we all need a corner desk moment in our lives. 
I'm so pleased that Taban listened and stepped out and flew. Her work at the Lotus Flower is truly changing lives, hers included, and it's clear that she has finally found her purpose and her passion. As she says, as scary as it is, there's a solution for everything. Just think a bit creatively and accept that it might not be an easy journey, but that's okay. It's not meant to be an easy journey. It's not meant to be a perfect journey. The Lotus Flower is a charity, and if you've been inspired by Taban's story, you can donate at thelotusflower.org. Thank you so much, Taban, for sharing your life and your work with us all today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Double Espresso with Dee. Do connect with me on Instagram at Espresso. I love hearing your feedback and what has resonated with you. And don't forget to join me next week for another amazing guest interview. Until then, au revoir.